Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of It Starts With Attraction. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing ItStartsWithAttraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to ItStartsWithAttraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. Lust kills love. I could cite tons of research that backs this exact phrase up from how porn and sex addiction can wreak havoc in an intimate relationship all the way to how it can affect someone personally when they are entrenched in the addiction of it. In our culture these days, it can be so much easier to chase after lust than to find real love. In today's podcast episode, I am talking to Nate Larkin, who is not just an absolutely fascinating human being and an amazing person to talk to, but he is someone who has experienced this struggle himself. You're not going to hear from me how entrenched and difficult it can be to break free from the ties of sexual addiction, but from someone who has lived it and let it completely rule his life for over 20 years. This story is captivating and it gave me goosebumps. Even if you are not struggling with sex addiction, this is a story I encourage you to listen to because there are so many aha moments that I had in the middle of this as well. Even just thinking about when you are struggling with something in life and there is shame and guilt that are weighing you down, what is the best way to break free from it? That's what we talk about in today's episode. Hey, my name is Kimberly Beam Holmes, and this is It Starts With Attraction, where we discuss how to become the most attractive that you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as us insiders call it, the pies. You can become more attractive to others and most importantly, to yourself. We will teach you how. Let's dive in. If you've ever wanted to know what your attractiveness score is, then I have a free guide that you're going to want to go and download. Now, I'm going to tell you that this isn't going to be like those quizzes or surveys or tests that you see online that are like, how hot are you or how sexy are you? Because I think those end up making people feel worse about themselves at the end than ever before. This free attraction assessment guide that I have created is a no gimmicks, truthful and honest representation of how you can assess your and see the areas of attraction that you feel most confident in and the areas of attraction where you need opportunity for growth. It's not going to be done in a way that makes you feel worse about yourself, but is going to give you real tools and tactics that you can begin to implement after you know which areas you should focus a little more on and which ones you're already slaying. You can go and get your free guide at itstartswithattraction.com. You'll see the opt-in form in the lower right-hand corner, and it'll be emailed to you immediately. I can't wait to hear about your results and your scores and the way that you decide to make some changes in your life so that you can be the most attractive that you can be. Go and get your free guide at itstartswithattraction.com. Let's start with, would you share with the audience what it is that you do? And then we'll go backwards from there. 
Well, you know, I, I feel as though my calling, my vocation, although I don't get paid for it, is really to uh, walk honestly, humbly, as transparently and authentically and vulnerably as possible with other guys. Mm-hmm. To be a safe place for other men to talk about uh, those things that, at least in contemporary Christian society, the guys I walk with, by and large, are Christians. The things that are difficult to talk about. And because my story is one of, you know, some crazy sexual behavior, some sexual addiction, uh, a lot of guys find that uh, within a few minutes of beginning our conversation, I'm the safest guy they know. And it's uh, I'm somebody they can unload on. And that's my great joy. Hmm. How did you get to a place where you would be open to talk about your sexual past and addictions? Well, it took... Uh, finally discovering a shame-free environment and watching other guys model this kind of vulnerability and benefiting from their willingness to talk openly about where they had been and where they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when I first entered 12-step recovery for sex addiction, I couldn't even say the word sex addiction. I couldn't, I couldn't even consider my, I couldn't, I was just so steeped in shame. I wanted nothing more than to find a quick solution, take whatever course was available, graduate, get the hell out of there. Um, but what I found was this wonderfully accepting, kind, empathetic, serene, and therapeutic, this healing place where all we were doing was having honest conversation and being together. And, uh, you know, I saw, you know, I experienced such healing. My wife, miraculously, although she was even more skeptical than I at the beginning, eventually began to see changes she'd never seen before. And, uh, you know, there's something about it. When you've been the beneficiary of that much kindness and experience that much healing, there's just an inner drive to be able to want to, if it's possible for me to help relieve the suffering of another man or another marriage, then I want to do it. Nate, how did you, what, what's your story? So where, how did it start? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm still excavating uh, and uh, kind of finding new insights as to where it began. Uh, but so I grew up in church. I grew up in, uh, the holiness tradition of the, uh, you know, evangelical Christian. My dad was a Pentecostal preacher. Uh, I grew up in rural settings and small towns. I'm the oldest of 10 kids. Uh, my dad pastored when I was growing up, always little churches, storefront churches, uh, country churches, churches where we doubled the size of the Sunday school when we showed up. <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, holiness was very much the theme of Christian living for us. And we defined holiness with a very long list of things that real Christians do not do. So, you know, we didn't smoke, drink, chew, or go with those who do. We didn't go to the movies. We didn't, you know, we didn't listen to rock and roll on the radio. We didn't have a television. We, I mean, we didn't play baseball on Sundays. I don't know. There was a whole list of things. And then there was this other thing that I think the prohibition was even more powerful because we didn't talk about it. And that was sex. That was the great unmentionable. 
if we ever came close to it in conversation, the subject was quickly changed. That sent a very powerful message to me. Now, um, these days, uh, the most effective, the uh, the most promising addiction treatment is trauma-based. We've come to recognize that the root of all addiction is trauma of one kind or another. And there are actually uh, tests that you can take that kind of give you a score of, of adverse childhood experiences. Um, that my trauma history really began in earnest when I was eight years old. Uh, my mother uh, suffered a, a mental collapse, was sent to a psychiatric hospital, was there for a year and, uh, and then took her own life. Uh, that was hugely traumatic. And what followed was traumatic. All the being separated from my siblings for months at a time. Then the arrival of a stepmother who was emotionally unprepared for the role she had been recruited to fill. Um, you know, and you know, there's a, a lot of things that set me up as really just, I was a sitting duck for sex addiction. And then I encountered pornography the first, for the first time at around the age of 10 in the form of a Playboy magazine. And I was stunned. It took me completely by surprise. Nobody had warned me that porn even existed. Nobody had told me that every boy eventually sees porn. Nobody told me that every boy eventually, you know, instinctively likes porn because it depicts something that we're wired by God to want. I knew it was wrong. I knew there was something wrong about it, but I didn't know what it was. I just, I felt guilty for having seen it and ashamed of having liked it. And so, you know, I did what what guilt does. I lied and I did what shame does. I hid very effectively under and did my very best to be the good boy that I was expected to be. And, you know, all up through adolescence, even while my interest in pornography, you know, was growing, uh, I always had to keep a secret because as, you know, the Christian kid in a public high school, I had a testimony to uphold. Uh, You know, I, you know, I was representing Jesus the whole time. And so I had to really hide from myself. So now I have this private struggle against a a growing compulsion. I don't, you know, porn is meeting or promising to me meet a very deep need that I have for intimacy. But of course, it's all a sham. Uh, I feel very, very lonely. Uh, Socially, it was kind of a weird thing. Uh, I won't go into it. But, you know, porn, uh, yeah, I, I... Looking back on it now, I think this is pornography's most pernicious characteristic. This is what really makes it poisonous. Pornography offers an imaginary connection with a virtual person, which, if you accept it, begins at that moment to undermine your ability to create and sustain a real relationship with an actual person. Long-term porn use creates an intimacy disorder. And I really think that sex addiction is best understood as an intimacy disorder with roots in trauma. Mm. 
but it sets us up. You know, it always left me lonelier <laughs> and yet with a deeper uh, hunger to go back for more. So that was a very long and agonizing and humiliating, shame-filled process, you know, punctuated by endless trips to the altar, private moments of confession, you know, pro promises to God, you know, uh, that I could never keep. Uh, banking on marriage, by the way, to solve the problem. I was, I was deeply disappointed to discover that marriage hadn't solved my porn problem. I'd actually rationalized my porn use during my college years as preparation for marriage. Uh, completely unaware that porn was actually poisoning my marriage, uh, creating expectations for marriage. Uh, that no woman on the planet would ever be able to fulfill and altering my arousal template, setting me up for, uh, you know, an addiction as much to novelty as anything else in a way that would just create. Uh, yeah, it was, it was tough. And I was deeply disappointed to find that, although I met the, the most fantastic woman who is beautiful and wonderful and my best friend. And we made a deep soul connection right from the outset. This porn thing would not go away. And somehow my ability to, it's as though my ability to connect with her deeply had been handicapped. It'd been kneecapped somehow. I really do believe uh, that lust kills love. And uh, uh, we live in a culture uh, that doesn't know how to draw the distinction between lust and love, between this very selfish and this selfless activity, this thing that sees bodies as opposed to love, which sees people. You know, lust, which is about taking, love, which is about giving. Uh, and so what could have been, you know, the that deep experience of bonding and deepening our intimate connection became, in my mind, between my ears, you know, a nightly performance and, you know, and a need as essential as my need for air and water. And it's, an, it's, a, it's a very terrible place to be. And porn eventually took me places I never intended to go. I never thought that I would be physically unfaithful to my wife. In fact, I regarded pornography for, for the first few years as kind of this bulwark against infidelity. Uh, it was a way to kind of handle this, you know, huge sexual need that, that Allie, especially after we had kids and life was busy and she couldn't possibly be this goddess that I, I needed. So I would just take care of it with porn. And I was actually doing her a favor is what I thought. Uh, at the same time, now I was just conditioning myself, preparing myself, scripting myself for automatic behavior. And eventually when the opportunity predate, but you know, ironically, after I had become a pastor, uh, even worse on a Christmas Eve, on my way to lead a candlelight service in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, wound up uh, uh, giving a ride to, I uh, thinking I was doing, you know, the, the uh, yeah, the I, I was being kind by giving a woman a ride out of the rain 
not knowing what she was up to until she was in the car and propositioning me. And I went on automatic. That was my first prostitute. Uh, and then just this awful feeling, knowing, hating what I'd done, praying I would never doing it, do it again, and knowing I would. It was now inevitable. I was over the edge and gone. And that was just... Uh, you know, the, the self-loathing, the self-hatred, I despised my own hypocrisy. I was terrified of being discovered. And that terror was enough when I finally concluded that I either had to quit the ministry or quit the behavior, and, and there was only one I could quit. It drove me from the ministry. I, I retired at the ripe age of 30 and uh, went into business. Uh, out of the spotlight, at least, so that I wouldn't wind up on the front page of the paper when they inevitably caught me. Uh, hoping that maybe once I'd escaped the pressures of the ministry, once I could just be uh, another guy in the pew, uh, maybe I could get things under control. That didn't work. Uh, I now had much more money. I was making more money than I'd ever made in the ministry with even less accountability and the so the problem got worse. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, crazy, very, very dark couple decades during which, by the way, I, I never left church. I love church. I, I did. Uh, and, and people loved me in church and I, and I led in church. I didn't just go. I was very active. Uh, and I maintained this public persona very well. And I tried very hard to be St. Nate, the guy everybody thought I was. And St. Nate could breathe at church. I just couldn't get that guy to breathe on his own for very long outside the building. I was running two lives. Uh, and really, uh, you know, my real life was gone. But I, I'm just so grateful that 22 years ago now, shortly after we made the move from South Florida here to Franklin, Tennessee, uh, my wife discovered me. And um, how she's long has it been going on? Been going on for 20 years. We've been married for 20 years. She had no idea. Well, oddly, there was a point uh, about five years. Five years in, where uh, after I'd been to a men's retreat and heard a guy say the word porn for the first time I'd ever heard it in church, I came home inspired by his example and confessed to Allie what I'd been doing. You confessed? Yeah. Uh, there'd been no hookers yet. It was porn. Uh, I had been, by this time, I had been introduced to hardcore pornography Thanks to Princeton Theological Seminary, they took Allie and me on a field trip into, uh, into New York City on a trip co-sponsored by the seminary and a group called Women Against Pornography. Uh, the idea was to show us the seamy side of, see, show us how women are exploited by the sex industry so that we would know enough, you know. And I thought, this is what I need. I'm a good guy if I can see how destructive it is, I'll, I'll surely stop. I got my first look at hardcore porn, the kind of stuff any eight unsupervised eight-year-old can find in two minutes today on the internet. I saw it for the first time with my wife beside me in the peep show booth. She put the quarter in. 
Um, and, you know, she was disgusted by what she saw in that moment. I was too, but at the same time, you know, as I, as I say, it's as though somewhere deep inside me, a door swung open. I was, I was hooked from my first view. And there's something very powerful, much more powerful about those moving images. That was still, I didn't know it at the time that was stimulating a part of the brain that uh, Playboy magazine had never been able to reach a deeper part of the brain, overwhelming that, uh, you know, the higher portion of the brain where critical thinking takes place, where moral judgments are made. Um, yeah. So I was hooked on hardcore porn. Confess that to Allie. She took it bravely. She is not uh, naive at all. She said, uh, you know, thank you for telling me this explains a lot. Um, I'm sorry you haven't that you felt like you've had to hide it. I don't condone the behavior. I'm glad you want to quit. And I'm here to help. And uh, whenever it you are tempted, you can tell me. And miraculously, um, with that confession, it's as though the obsession lifted. And I thought, wow, this is it. This is the solution. Uh, Allie can be my accountability partner in all matters sexual, and nobody else will ever have to know. It's Allie and me against the world, and we can kick this thing. What I started to recognize, though, as I began to uh, confide in her, was that Although Allie had volunteered for this job, it's not one that she was really equipped to do because she could never hear my confession completely objectively. In her mind, any attraction that I felt toward any other woman pointed to some deficiency in her. I could see that it hurt her. And I don't like to hurt her. And it's humiliating. And so... After a short period of confessing to her, I stopped telling her. She concluded it's because it had worked. We'd threw the white water. I hit it deeper and uh, became more devious. And then, you know, and then we, you know, we went into the ministry and the pressures piled on and Allie didn't know what was going on. She thought it was either the ministry or it was her. There was a disconnect. Yeah. Um, You know, we have always been friends. And it is that friendship alone. That's that thread that was because I'll tell you when when she finally caught me here 20 years in. (laughs) Well, the first she caught me at first. We we'd moved here. Uh, from South Florida, things had gone fantastic for the first few weeks. Uh, but then uh, we'd started to run out of money. When we started running out of money, I started to get scared. And when I got scared, I reached for the only fear medication I'd been using. So, so late one night after she'd fallen asleep, I went back in my office, fired up the computer, started downloading porn. And, uh, and it was in the middle of that session that Allie walked in. So um, that night, that was a very long night. I, I, I apologized and I explained and I promised and I begged and, and she forgave me. 
Uh, but uh, a couple of weeks later, she found a condom on the floor in the bathroom that I could not quite explain. And, uh, and that's when she sat me down on the edge of our bed and she said, I'm done. She said, um, I still love you, but I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't respect you. And I don't think you can ever change. Those were the words that saved my life. Uh, I'm told that four out of five guys who seek help for sexually compulsive behavior only do so after receiving an ultimatum from a wife or a girlfriend. Uh, this was not an ultimatum, uh, but I knew that if there, because she didn't even say, I mean, she was, she was just checking out and I desperate, she was my only friend. And I knew if there was going to be any chance that I could salvage our marriage and our family, and I was going to have to do something I'd never done before. I was going to have to end this private solution for a private problem. And I was going to have to find somebody to talk to. And uh, I didn't go to, <laughs> I didn't go to a preacher. I'd been a preacher. I didn't trust preachers. Um, I didn't go to a therapist. By now I was out of money. Uh, but uh, I did go back to the internet, Google sex addiction. Well, it was before Google. It was the Alta Vista search engine. I punched in uh, uh, sex addiction Nashville and hit return and discovered to my astonishment that I had apparently moved to the center of the universe for sex addiction recovery. Uh, found a phone number, called it, and got an answer back telling me about a meeting, a 12-step meeting uh, in Nashville that evening. Uh, it was at 7 o'clock. I got there at 6.45, sat in the parking lot while other people pulled up and went inside. I couldn't find the courage to get out of my car. Uh, 7.15 drove away. Uh, spent the next hour cruising around Nashville, coming up with the story I would tell Allie. I didn't, <laughs> it made no point she wasn't talking to me. Uh, a week later, I was back and about to drive away for the second time when I saw a guy I recognized from church. Mm. Just a guy, just a guy. But I had... Um, I heard this guy speak up a couple times in men's Bible studies, and there was something about him I liked. He just seemed very comfortable in his own skin. Very clear. He was a Christian. He loved Jesus, all that stuff. But the, the most striking thing about this guy was he talked about his sin in the present tense. And uh, without shame. He was a guy in process who wasn't ashamed of being in process. Uh, I followed him inside. And, 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 and what I found in the basement of that church that night changed my life. Yeah, not, 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 not right away. <laughs> I mean, in fact, I was so intellectually and spiritually arrogant that it would be a couple years before I could actually taste true sexual sobriety. But it started that night. 
And I, I remember coming out of that church basement mad, furious that I had spent a lifetime in church and I had never been in a room that safe. I'd never heard honesty like that. Never felt such empathy, such kindness. I don't think I'd ever heard Jesus like I heard him in that room from a bunch of uh, Samaritans who didn't even seem to know his proper name. They kept referring to him as a higher power, you know. Uh, But that was kind of the beginning of my... Uh, Exodus, my rescue from moralistic Christianity into something far more spiritual, something far more loving and grace-filled, something far more transformational, really. (laughs) But, um, But the healing came only through relationship. I had to be willing to abandon this private solution for a private you know, this private search for a private solution to my private problem. I, I'd always been willing to trust Christ, never, be, never been willing to trust what the Bible calls the body of Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't even believe in the body of Christ. I thought that was a metaphor. I didn't believe that Jesus is physically present on this planet in the lives of broken people. But I believe it today. And the greatest act of surrender that I make to Christ every day is to have an honest conversation with another member of the body of Christ. And his promise is that whenever two or three of us are together in his name, really together, not sending some persona, um, he's there. Uh, you know, one of the things that I discovered in recovery was that that um, that God didn't like Saint Nate. Um, because he didn't make Saint Nate, he made me. Now he was always inviting me. I always sent Saint Nate. What was missing from my relationship with God all those years was never God, it was me. I was sending somebody else. It's the same thing that was missing from all my other relationships. It's it's why I had no real friends. I was well-known, but nobody knew me. I was well-liked, but it didn't mean anything because I knew they didn't know me. Mm -hmm. All the affirmation I got, and I got plenty of applause. It meant nothing. I was afraid I was terrified that if people ever saw me and knew my real story, I would lose all my friends, all these shallow relationships I had. I would be shunned and abandoned. And, you know, everybody would run. Well, they did run. They ran at me. It turns out that that when you are truly vulnerable, you become freaking magnetic. Because all of us want to be able to have a friendship with a real person. And all of us are suspicious of the actors we interact with every day. We want the safety of a real relationship. And that's what we want in marriage as well. My wife doesn't want somebody who's acting like the perfect husband. 
She wants me who's trying to be a better husband, but who can admit where he's screwing up day after day without shame. The amazing, you know, Allie will say today that she has been married to two guys named Nate Larkin. And as tough as those first 20 years were, she says she'd take him again in a heartbeat to get what we have today. I don't recommend it as a way to enrich your marriage. Uh, but it's not the end of the world. We don't have to panic when we discover. Uh, you know, when you discover that you're married to somebody who's more messed up than you thought he was. You don't have to panic. I love pulling guys out of the soup, getting them in the boat and telling them that, that what feels like the worst day of their life can turn out to be the very best. Because they've got the golden ticket now. They can now get into a new way of living and they can get into honest community and uh, meet Jesus in a whole new way. Those guys who are Christians. So how does someone know if they are a sex addict? Yeah. You know, there are a bunch of uh, quizzes that you can take online. Uh, you know, the classic definition of addiction is continuing to, uh, to engage in a behavior despite negative consequences. Um, you know, I made endless resolutions to quit. But part of the game of a Addiction, you know, the, the way addiction works is it, it, it uh, my, you know, my inner addict is always working to uh, minimize the effect of what I'm doing to tell me that I'm only affecting myself. Um, it, it, here's what here's what I know. When a guy hits the wall with addiction, when he crosses a line that he's never crossed before or when he's discovered in a way he's never been discovered before. And he, and suddenly for a moment, uh, he looks around and he realizes how much he's lost and how much he's put at risk and how insane and impoverished he is right now. There is this window of opportunity where he can now go for help and start the process of recovery. But almost as soon as it opens, that window starts to close <laughs> because this is a very uncomfortable reality to face and accept. And what we want to believe is that, you know, I finally learned my lesson. This is it. I've turned the corner. That's the last time I, I've now I've got a new plan. I, I don't I don't need to surrender. I don't need to go. I don't need to admit that I'm that messed up because it's not that bad. But thank God I had the wake up call, you know. Um, so, uh, at some point there are those people, those rare, uh, gifted and fortunate people with the wisdom to see how devastating addiction is, whether it's addiction to a substance or activity before it has really, you know, threatens to sweep away their entire life. I mean, in AA, they call those people the high bottom drunks. You know, I envy those folks. I feel fortunate that my marriage survived. I can take no credit for it. Um, but 
if here's what I can say. If you're worried that you might be a sex addict, that's a good indication that there's a high probability you are. So go ahead and take the assessments. Go see a therapist. Uh, the good news is we know more and more and more about sex addiction these days. And especially now that we know that addiction almost invariably is rooted in trauma. And there are so many ways of treating trauma. And since there is so much available now in the form of safe community, and we really only recover in community. I, I, I'm more convinced of that every day. That's how we're designed we're designed for relationship. Now, Hollywood will tell us that we only need one relationship. We need a marriage relationship. And when we found the perfect mate, that's all we need. I will tell you now, I, I do have the mate that's perfect for me. My wife loves that I have brothers in the Samson Society. She feels like she's got about 50 brothers-in-law. She trusts me to them. Now, Allie is not my accountability partner in all matters sexual. We have a deal. I will always give her an honest answer to a direct question. But I'm not going to pile on her something she hasn't asked for. Um, she trusts me to my brother. She knows she trusts me because she knows I don't trust myself. I'm walking together with other guys. I have their back. They have mine. We're talking about all of life and all of life's stresses, not just focusing on managing one kind of behavior. It makes me a stronger, wiser, in some ways, weaker, but weaker in a good way. I know where my weaknesses are because I got guys pointing them out to me. Uh, it makes for a much more balanced life. One of the great laments that I do hear from so many women, and by the way, I don't make it a practice to talk to a lot of women, but it's amazing how many wives will tell me, they'll look at me in frustration, they'll go, I wish he would come and see you, or I wish he'd go to Samson. I'm his only friend. She desperately wishes that he would have some, some, some guys to walk with who were going in the same direction. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So how do you encourage the wife when she mm -hmm. can't force her husband to go? No, no, she can't. She can't. She, although I will tell you, she's got more leverage than anybody else. And there are any number of guys now who I know in the Samson society who on their first meeting said, I'm here because my wife told me to come. Okay. Now, that's not enough to get a guy to stick around, but it can be enough to get him there the first time. And what we have found is safe community of this type. We call ourselves the pirate monks. I mean, it's, this is not squeaky clean Sunday school stuff. This is guy stuff. It's pretty sticky. And unless a guy is completely committed to dealing with his issues on his own, and he's not ready to allow anybody else in. If he's looking for help of any kind, if he's at all receptive, um, the odds are he's going to stick. 
Yeah. So what led you to create the Samson Society? You you started your recovery in a 12 12- Yeah, 12 step group. Yeah, yeah. And I'm so grateful for 12 step recovery. Really. It it rescued my spiritual life. My Christianity was on life support at that point. Uh, I was going through the motions, but I mean, it was all gone. Um, and ironically, 12 step is not a Christian organization. And I, you know, uh, two things. First of all, one of the things I, there are 12 step groups for almost any compulsive behavior you can name. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of them. Um, and that points to the fact that really all addicts share an inner architecture and the basic principles that work in one that help one kind of addict can help another. Uh, but the groups themselves are behavior specific. Uh, when I started, uh, when I first began to kind of get free of all this shame and found the courage to tell somebody else in church what I was actually dealing with, to stop speaking in code, to step out of the safety a little bit, just to see what would happen. Uh, What I found was people ran in my direction. Here's somebody who's going to talk about it, right? Um, I gave my pastor, told my pastor my story, gave him my phone number and said, you you encounter anybody, any guy with a similar, you, you think I can help, give him my phone number. Well, my phone started to ring. And so I started meeting with guys and walking with guys. And eventually I'm walking with, you know, three guys and then five guys and six guys and eight guys. And now it's starting to get out of control. At one point I got, you know, I got more than Jesus and this is not a good thing, you know, because, you know, I'm not. And Allie, no, Allie knows it's not a good thing. Because she has seen this me in this me, but she knows that I have kind of messianic ambitions anyway. Mm. Uh, and as my sponsor in 12 step recovery pointed out, my biggest problem was pride. Mm. Right. Uh, and it's stuff to, you know, it's, it's tough to keep yourself in perspective when you got a whole bunch of people looking to you for answers. Mm. Uh, uh, I would take guys to 12 step recovery. Some guys couldn't, hack it. Christian guys really needed the Christian language. They needed the explicit connection and 12-step recovery didn't work for them. Other guys, I was walking with guys whose primary problem wasn't sexual. Um, But anyway, it all came down one night. Allie and I were, uh, we were at dinner just as the food arrived, my phone rang and it was a guy who was deep in the weeds. He was in trouble. And I excused myself from the table and went and talked to the guy for quite some time and kind of talked him down and, and got back to the table and the food was cold and Allie was colder, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and she said, you know, we got to talk. And I said, look, I, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry, but I'm doing good. Right. She says, Yes. And I said, I'm doing good because of what I just did. I'm helping guys. And that's why I'm getting better. Uh, taking, taking calls helps me. She says, I get it. She goes, how many guys are calling you? I said, around a dozen. She said, and getting the calls helps you. Exactly. 
She said, so um, if you're an addict, getting calls helps you, right? I said, yeah. She goes, do these guys know each other? I said, well, well, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. She said, are any of them calling each other? Is anybody else getting a call? Is anybody else getting the help of getting a call? Well, no, they're all calling me. <laughs> Man, she painted me into a corner so fast. She's, she should have been a lawyer. She yeah. <laughs> and that's uh, that's when it finally came clear. We got to. So I introduced all these guys to each other at the first meeting of the Samson Society, right. which I am not in charge of. The Samson Society is set up so that nobody's in charge and there's no positions and the meetings happen whether I'm there or not. I'm, you know, it's a wonderfully egalitarian Christian brotherhood. Uh, yeah. So it's and it's just been a wonderful thing ever since we the, it started here in Franklin, Tennessee. And I'll tell you what, what we experienced was so wonderful that, you know, we wanted to share it. So we put out a book in 2007, Samson and the Pirate Monks, hoping to inspire other guys to do something similar. And since then, about 500 local groups have started. And then uh, three years ago, almost three years ago now, not quite. We made the leap uh, to uh, start online meetings for those who couldn't make it to a local meeting. Uh, I resisted that, by the way. Uh, very skeptical because I know that recovery requires relationship. And as an old school guy, I didn't think that real relationships could form outside of a shared physical space. Uh, but uh, the guys introduced me to something called Zoom. Who knew? Uh, I sat in a meeting that felt very much like we were in the same room. Mm -hmm. And so we started uh, we started the online meetings, which uh, have just really mushroomed during COVID. So now we have guys around the world. Our goal is to have at least one virtual meeting every hour of every day. Uh, and what I'm finding is that deep friendships are forming between guys who haven't had the chance yet to hug each other. And they're connecting between the meetings. That's really where Samson lives, between the meetings. The meetings are kind of a doorway into the brotherhood. And they're finding that first key guy, what 12-step recovery calls a sponsor, we call a Silas. So they're finding their Silas. They're learning that everybody needs a Silas. Anybody can be a Silas. Get yourself one. And then let's start having daily conversations. Let's get in each other's lives. Not just talking about sex. Let's let's move away from just accountability into accessibility. Let's give each other real-time access to our lives. And let's start talking about what we're feeling, what we're thinking, what we're doing, and what we're thinking of doing. And here's why wives push their husbands out the door to go to Samson. They like what comes back. Because in Samson, we learn non-sexual intimacy. Uh, a foreign concept to a great many of us, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, intimacy was defined for us only in sexual terms. Mm -hmm. And that can be a very, you know, that was frustrating to Allie all the time because whenever we seem to get close, I only had one thing on my mind and I'm swinging for the fences, right? Uh, 
now intimacy means something more because I'm I don't always have an agenda. I love it when we, you know, when our intimacy becomes sexual, but it doesn't have to for it to be satisfying. Uh, that's the frosting on the cake, really. So you're learning this non-sexual intimacy through the relationship with other. In the- right. I, I'm learning to talk about my feelings with other guys. Nice. Yep. That's beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to talk about my feelings, I got to learn what the hell they are. Yeah. I got to get in touch with, you know, to live from the neck down and find out what's going on in this body God gave me. You know, I was doing irrational things for non-rational reasons for years, trying to solve the problem by rational means. Mm-hmm. Ah, now it's a whole lot deeper than that. Do you still struggle with temptation? Oh, yeah, sure. Sure. I mean, I live in a highly sexualized culture mm-hmm. and my brain remembers a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I have an un- comfortable feeling, uh, if I don't recognize it, now, now that's I've, I can be in trouble here if I don't recognize that it's there because it's powerful. My brain knows it's there. Um, that circuitry is, is dormant, but it's not gone. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that sex was my problem. I went, yeah, that one of the biggest revelations in recovery, my first sponsor said, Nate, hey, your biggest problem is you think that sex is your problem. I looked at him like I'm crazy, you know, like he was crazy. I said, what do you mean? He said, yes, sex is a problem. It's a big problem. You have to stop what you're doing. You can't stop on your own. God's going to have to do it. He's probably going to use us in the process. But if you think just stopping that sexual behavior is going to fix you and make you happy, you're crazy. If anything, if that's the only thing that changes, you'll become more miserable and more miserable be around than you already are. You become some freaking Pharisee. You don't need that. Because sex is not your problem. Sex is your favorite solution. It's the medication that you've been using all these years to numb the pain caused by your deeper problems, which, by the way, are common to man. So, yeah, my my brain remembers that solution. And so I still experience from time to time the urge to pursue lust. Thankfully, I no longer have the obsession. Um. Now, uh, uh, you know, I have a freedom, but I have learned it's a fragile freedom. (laughs) I ask for a lifetime supply. It's delivered a day at a time. And I've got to be humble enough to go out every day and pick it up. It requires me remaining vulnerable and honest and admitting how weak and fragile I am and asking for help and naming my needs. It requires me to join the human race every day. Stop trying to be superhuman and just be a man among men. Just be another bozo on the bus. It's when I try to be too big that I get in trouble. It's about living right-sized. Yeah. And it's a, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful way to live. It's hard work being God. 
I wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> Although I act like it, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. So I'm grateful. You know, if, if sex addiction is what it took to get me into this way of life and to get me this kind of help and this kind of opportunity also to be useful, then I'm, I'm grateful for it. I am. So what would you say is the key to overcoming sex addiction? Uh, giving up the illusion that you can do it alone. Hard. Yeah. Yeah. Because, see, it's it, and the problem is that we have surrounded sex addiction with so much shame mm-hmm. and fear. Right. I didn't admit sexual sins in church. Even when I was in accountability relationships, we had this kind of this deal where we kind of we talked in code about the, the lust of the eyes and the agenda. But I never ever and, and we promised, you know, we're going to get together weekly and ask each other the tough questions. But by the second week, I was always lying. Uh, I could never actually say what I was, you know just flat out say what I was doing because I had seen what had happened to other guys who had confessed or had been caught in a sexual sin. The hammer fell quickly and the alarm went off. The siren sounded. There's a sinner in the church. You know what I mean? Holy crap. And I wanted to stick around. I was going to lose everything. So uh, we have, we have, So I tried to shame my way out of shame-based behavior. That didn't work. I found I couldn't hate my sin or hate myself enough to stop. There's no bottom to that. Um, If we can take away the fear and take away the shame, shame's impulse since the days of the garden Mm -hmm. is to run and hide and cover up. We have to create a safe, shame-free environment where, in other words, we have to believe the gospel. We got to believe that there is this heavenly father who knows us all, who sees us in all our nakedness and is and absolutely adores us. Just he loves us. He is the best father we can imagine. Take the best father you know. you got a good dad. Joe Bean's a good man. He's a good father. And Jesus said, you think you're a good father? The best father you are? Nothing compared to God, my father. And that's our father. The one we're supposed to pray to every day, our father who's in heaven. I know how much I love my kids. And, and despite how... the mistakes they make and i mean even when they even when they're mad at me even when they defy me we have a father who loves us if we can get there and not panic and we can find other people who are there and we can now start to live as we were meant to live in community then our father is there (laughs) um yeah, it's uh, you know, I am a colossal failure as a solo disciple for the very simple reason Jesus doesn't have any solo disciples, doesn't want any solo disciples. That was never the plan. He came to reconstitute the family of God, he came to reconcile us to God and each other. That's what we Christians believe, 
It's what we're told. I mean, Jesus first said, follow me to two guys, not just one. And quickly added 10 more to them, had them follow them around together for a few years. As he told them that the most important thing is that they love each other. So, yeah. Stop trying to fix it on your own. Get out of fear and shame. Um, if you're not a Christian, I highly recommend it. Um, the gospel really is good news. It's been grossly misrepresented by a great many of our churches, but the pure gospel is so beautiful. And um, yeah, and then connect with the family of God. How can people find your book? Yeah. More about these amazing groups that are happening. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, the Samson Society, uh, by the way, there's no P in Samson's. Guys, uh, they seem to have an irresistible urge to put a P in Samson. <laughs> it's S-A-M-S-O-N, samsonsociety.org. We'll get you to the Samson Society website. Well, there's a link to my book there. You can get Samson and the Pirate Monks at Amazon or a dwindling number of fine bookstores everywhere. And by the way, one of the unexpected things that happened when we started the online groups for men was wives of these guys who suddenly had found community and friends and life started to change and get better. Wives began to notice. And um, so the wives of guys in virtual meetings found ways to connect and they started their own virtual meetings. Those groups uh, continue to multiply. Uh, I don't have any governance over them, but anyway, <laughs> or, uh, we're working. I, in fact, I got an email from uh, one of the leaders of those groups yesterday asking, what can we do to help get them a link on the website and get them some more help and support because women now are starting to come in droves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but we can get you an email link at Samson. Or you can always uh, send me an email. My personal email is nate at natelarkin.com, or you can find me on Facebook. Uh, my joy is just to help and connect people. So that's what you said at the beginning. Yeah. You're, what you do is connect mm -hmm. with others, especially men, to find the healing and the hope that, that there's a better future, right? Yeah, yeah. And it is, you know, and today, you know, porn is mainstream. It's mm -hmm. omnipresent. Mm -hmm. It is deceptively marketed as something that will actually enhance your sexual pleasure or improve your marriage or relationship. Meanwhile, it's poisoning relationship. It's stealing sexual fulfillment and pleasure. Uh, but nobody uh, is immune. We've got to be able to talk about it and we need to be able to talk about it without panicking. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Nate, thank you so much for what you do. First yeah. of all, for talking about something that has so much around it mm -hmm. um, and just speaking truth to it. Mm. There's so many lies, 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 lies. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate you being a voice that's giving hope and truth to, to these men and women. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the, the fastest uh, 
growing demographic among the sexually addicted population is female. And that can be doubly shaming uh, because uh, there are a lot of women who think, well, it's natural for a guy to become a sex addict. There's something unnatural about a woman getting hooked on porn. It's not unnatural at all. In fact, the pornographers have spotted that niche, have poured millions of dollars into creating porn specifically uh, uh, targeting women. And, uh, you know, if you have the vulnerability through your own adverse childhood experiences, you know, through, you know, what's going on, uh, a woman can as easily be ensnared by pornography as a man. Uh, Samson Society isn't uh, a group for women, but there is help available for women. And I'm happy to point any woman who's been ensnared by pornography in the direction of help. Just send me a note. That's amazing, Nate. Thank you. Here are my key pies takeaways from today's episode with Nate Larkin. Number one, ask yourself what you're struggling with. Throughout this episode, if you realized that you are struggling with an addiction to sex, to pornography, or to other types of behaviors that are taking away your ability to love deeply and keeping you focused on what lust is, then it might be time for you to find community. I could list all of the research of how porn, sex addiction, having multiple partners, whatever that might be, will ultimately lead to more difficulty in your future relationships. But that's not going to be what will speak to your heart right now. Because porn and sex addiction aren't logical. They are emotional. Your addiction is covering a pain that you have suffered in some way. And it may feel good to engage in these activities in the moment. But let me ask you this question. How is it working for you long term? Do you feel whole? Or do you feel empty? Is it creating a stronger and more fulfilling relationship in your life with real people? Or creating false expectations for yourself and others that leave you more frustrated, wanting to return to the addiction for more? The short-term band-aid of chasing after lust, whatever that might look like for you, trying to put that over a long-term relationship and the outcome of a strong relationship, it, it doesn't fit. It's something that may feel like it can work or fit now, but it's going to destroy you later. But it doesn't have to be this way. You can break free and you can find community. Look past those feelings of shame and look towards the hope that there is freedom on the other side. I hope that you heard Nate's story, his struggle that he went through as an opportunity for a better future for you. I encourage you to look into the Samson Society or whatever other groups, SA groups or AA groups, whatever might be near you to find community and stop trying to just push this addiction down. It's only going to make it worse. My second key pies takeaway is for if you are a spouse or significant other of an addict. I want you to remember this. It's not your fault. It can feel like you could have done something different, looked a different way, acted a different way, been different in the bedroom. But let me really let me tell you, And please hear me. 
There's nothing different that you could have done to stop an addiction of another person. That doesn't mean that there aren't things that you could do in order to become better for yourself. We are all that way. But there is nothing fundamentally that you did that pushed this person to become an addict. You have to take that weight off of your shoulders. You have to find your sense of purpose and identity apart from what your spouse or significant other is struggling with. So realize it's not you. But also realize that you can't force your spouse into getting help or into wanting help. It's something that has to come from within them. You can ask your spouse, you can encourage them. At some point, you may want to consider creating a boundary around protecting yourself with the encouragement of them going to get some kind of help or joining a community such as the Samson Society. But ultimately, that has to come from within them. And I know that this is a hard part because you want them to go get help. You want your spouse or significant other to find freedom. And how can you do that when you love them so much, but you can't force them into it? It's a hard, hard place to be. And if you're a person of faith, prayer is always the place that I turn to. Realize that this whole issue, the addiction, is deeper than what it seems on the outside. Addictions cover pain from somewhere further in the past. Nate shared in his story that his pain came from a mother who was not present, who ultimately committed suicide. He felt abandoned. He felt that he couldn't have intimacy with others. This laid a foundation for the temptation of an addiction to take him over later in his life. So try and have empathy for the people in your life who are struggling with addiction, realizing it's deeper. And while the tendency is to want to pull away from them, try and press in deeper to be there for them and show them that you love them and you care about them while also creating boundaries to keep yourself safe. My third key pies takeaway from this episode is I hope that you realized the change of perception that you had when you heard his story. If you had heard Nate simply say, or if you had heard me talking about Nate and say there was a man who had 20 years of pornography addiction, prostitutes, having affairs on his wife, you would have had a certain judgment and perspective about him just from that information. You could try and base his character on that, what you think he is as a person. But ultimately, it's the story that he told that gave you insight into his feelings about it, into his emotions, into what paved the way, into into what led to that addiction. And that, whether you realize it or not, reframed how you think about Nate overall. And this is powerful for you to realize in every relationship in your life. When you are quick to judge another person based on what you know they did, what you heard that they did, or or anything like that, just knowing what they did doesn't tell you anything about the person. It might give you a quick ability to pass judgment on them, but it's until you know the story behind it. How do they feel about it? What were the struggles that were going on in their life when they went through that? That's what gives you insight into the true character of a person. 
I hope that you take this practice into your other relationships. And instead, next time when your significant other tells you something they did that makes you angry, stop and ask your spouse or your significant other how they felt about it. What led them to do that? If your spouse has been covering up lies to you or dealing with an addiction themselves, then instead of simply passing judgment on the facts, explore the feelings underneath. It will give you more insight and more perception and more understanding of the other person, where they're coming from, what they struggle with, what their desires are, what their hopes are. And ultimately, it will create more empathy in your life overall. It's a great practice to take into every area of our lives. Go get your free attraction assessment at itstartswithattraction.com. In this assessment, you will be able to self-assess yourself in all four areas of attraction to see the areas in which you could use the most growth and to identify the areas that you are already slaying it. Go get your free guide at itstartswithattraction.com. Friends, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember to go and subscribe to this podcast and leave an honest review. I love to hear from you guys. So be sure to go and do that. And it will also help more people find the podcast as well. You can always find out more information by going to itstartswithattraction.com for show notes, for updates, and to join the email list so that every Friday you can get an encouraging email that specifically tells you what you can do to work on your pies so that you can become the best that you can be physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. Until next week, keep working on your pies and stay strong.